0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: Interesting article in the Hamilton Spectator today. A Hamilton police project entitled Project Shutdown uh, has been ongoing and targeting vehicle theft. How bad is this situation? It seems uh, it's pretty bad. To talk more about all of this. By the way, we should say that we uh, put calls into Hamilton Police Service on this, uh, and they're hoping to get somebody uh, that can chat about this uh, a little later on. But at this point... Uh, it is not possible. So we're going to bring in uh, Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, com, And of course, you can read his Facebook page. He is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today?
2: I'm good to be with you, Scott. Yeah, hopefully you will get somebody on from Hamilton Police that can advise people how to protect themselves from these sort of uh, thefts, Scott.
1: So I guess this is no secret here, Uh, you know, there's always been an auto theft, vehicle theft problem in Hamilton. Uh, How bad is it, though? It seems to be a bit worse than than people are realizing, or certainly what the average is anyway.
2: Well, certainly it is, and one of the things you'll notice is that uh, the criminals, the insurance company, and the police, uh, their crime is all data-driven these days, Scott. Uh, what What they were able to discover was there was a rash of thefts of Fairly new uh, trucks, you know, Chevys, uh, DMCs, uh, Dodges were going on in the area. Uh, They were going missing, not being recovered. And the insurance companies know that these cars are stolen mostly because their parts have such a wide resale value and are basically untraceable and there's a big market for them, more so than just a specific uh, car model per se. So the insurance companies know that. The bad guys know which vehicles they're looking to steal because they know what it's easiest to sell in the marketplace. And guess what? Hamilton police and the other local police forces have got together. They recognized the trend and they started watching for the thefts of these types of vehicles, what was going on, finding trends. And lo and behold, Scott, 75 vehicles recovered.
1: So, you bring up an interesting point. This isn't, I guess we normally think of, uh, you know, stolen vehicles. If someone steals a vehicle, uh, somehow someone else ends up with it. But this isn't the case. These are stripped down for parts, they're not sold as, or or taken offshore or whatever as, as full vehicles.
2: Yeah, apparently this project was specifically looking at vehicles like that. It was not going after a separate market, which is the stealing of high-end vehicles, SUVs, luxury cars. That you know, very sophisticated to steal those, and within a day or so, they'll be on a, uh, on a tanker truck, you know, in a in a cargo container going off to uh, Africa, South America, or the Middle East. So, this was a different focus for this project. This was people stealing, for parts.
1: Uh, and and again, getting back to what you were initially saying, this is because it is uh, harder to trace as opposed to a fully built vehicle.
2: Well, yeah, a lot of many trucks, they don't specialize as much as putting uh, uh, numbers and identification pieces on everything that they have. You know, funny enough, I remember seeing uh, down in Miami in California, there's a huge problem for people. You know those high- end Mercedes G wagons,
3: mm-hmm, right? Uh, yeah. sort
2: of the the one that Arnold drives or whatever. Well, apparently there's a real business in just going around taking the taillights and the signal lights off of those. And they, I was watching guys, they'd have a, a camera outside their house, someone would wheel up with a power screwdriver, have them off and gone, and then they'd see them up on uh, one of the online for sale places for a number of dollars. But here's the shocker, when they go back in to get replacement parts at their dealership, it was like 6000 bucks to replace those parts. So... There's there's huge money in this, and it's creating sort of a gray market for these thieves to operate in, in in selling the parts where they can sell them at a good price, and people who want to buy them feel like they're getting a deal.
1: Is this just the tip of the iceberg? How difficult is this to trace?
2: Well, look, I, I, I'm going to say this. I'm glad that they were able to shut this one down because this is an organized ring. It really becomes a problem for a community when you have an organized ring going around. And, you know, everybody would have heard them in, dif- in different cities. I don't care where you are in this country, where all of a sudden the police will put out an alert on a certain style of car that's being stolen. all over. In one night, there'll be 12 of them gone uh, within a regional area. It's because different vehicles have different weak spots. And the bad guys find out about those. They find the ones that are most profitable, and they'll go and route out those weak spots and stay on those ones. Of course, the cor- the police recognize the trend. And they come to go on after it. In this case, however, this was a pretty serious one that involved not just Hamilton, but the whole region around Hamilton. So the police, once again, as Hamilton has shown, have- do a great job of doing liaison work with all the other departments to pull together to help get the data and to solve these problems
1: a uh, fascinating comment out of uh the hamilton spectator today uh the quote when this project first started this is from sergeant uh, sean moore hamilton's officer on uh, project shutdown when this project first started we came to the table and said we have a stolen vehicle problem six nations came to the table and said ours is the opposite we have a stolen stolen vehicle recovery problem how important uh, is it for everybody to work together on this thing
2: Well, it is, but what you'll see is sometimes you will you will have communities, and I'm not saying that this is the case in this community, but you'll have communities that this is a a, a form of profit for the community. And you'll have, when you have organized crime, uh, particularly well-established, long-serving organized crime in different areas, they have a habit of uh, being like the godfather and paying off the communities and putting in the Ferris wheels and giving some money here. And so to the community, it, it can become you know, a source of income for it. But, you know, on, on the other part of this, what we're seeing is they also make mention that they believe that a lot of these stolen car, car parts uh, may have been taken, stolen, and that money used to then purchase drugs and move drugs around. So it's interesting that the train doesn't just stop, uh, Scott, at stolen vehicles. You can involve a whole series of other crimes that go along with it.
1: Uh, You talked about the insurance company's involvement with it. Obviously, uh, they want this problem solved because in the end, uh, they're the ones that are paying for these vehicles. Uh, What is their involvement in all of this?
2: The insurance companies work closely as much as they can all the time uh, with police departments, uh, with the Department of Motor Vehicles to look after vehicles, to track their, their parts, to look at their vehicle identification numbers. To make sure that if a vehicle becomes salvaged, it, it doesn't get sold as new again, and and all the scams that go around the business of dealing with vehicles. So the insurance companies have a great deal of interest uh, in solving the problems. They do a lot of work themselves, but they need the police's help uh, to get at this as well. So you can start laying charges. And like I say, the bigger when you put a dent in an organized group like this. Uh, you do well with it. But I'll also note, though, that the police are saying that a bunch of the ones they arrested this time around, they arrested three or four or five times before. So this, for some of them, this is just a cost of doing business. Uh, they get back out, they go right back on the job.
1: So where do you, if you're the police, where which end do you go at this? Do you start from the recovery and go backwards, or do you try to stop this uh, as it's starting or uh, in preventing it from starting?
2: Well, it depends. The police do a lot of work where, they, where they'll be notified by insurance companies of vehicles that come in that have been, uh, let's say, damaged. But guess what? The VIN numbers and parts don't add up. And where did it come from? Where was that shop? Where is that shop getting its parts? You know, and they and they can work the chain a lot of the time. So the police are very adept, and Hamilton police in particular are very adept at, at working the chain from wherever they get a chance to pull on the thread. But, you know, just one other point I want to make about this is this can be very, very dangerous for the community, too. You know, I alluded, I was on your show last February about it, about uh, a man from just off the Six Nations Reserve that is now charged with murder because he went out to his driveway and found someone who ended up being from Six Nations trying to steal his truck. There was a confrontation. He shot the man. This guy's up on murder charges now. Uh, the neighborhood has got a petition with 15,000 signatures on it saying they want them dropped. You know, I would think if I was his lawyer, I'd be very interested in maybe a bunch of the things that the police have found out of this group to see if there's connections to any any violence or or, or other things that may help to shed light on, on that particular murder charge. So the stealing of vehicles, while we say, oh yeah, joyriding, stealing a car, it can involve some very serious consequences from... Uh, people getting in fights and a murder charge from defending their property to someone running off with a stolen vehicle and hurting someone. They also lead to the Hamilton police have said that many of these stolen vehicles are re- used in gas and dashes, mm-hmm. where they pull in the gas stations and steal the gas. And, we, and we, know of, we know of retail clerks in these gas stations who have been injured or killed because vehicles are running away in gas and dash. So it's a very serious starting point that I'm glad to see the police have been able to make some headway on.
1: Where do these parts end up? So a vehicle is stolen, it ends up in a a place where it's stripped down. Where do these parts, who do these parts get sold to from that point?
2: Well there's lots of places that they can go. I mean they can go right back into the, uh, right back into the marketplace, be be sent out to dealers and repair shops uh, who, who may not ask the questions of where it comes from or may not even know where it comes from when they're looking for parts from certain places. You know, to uh, other people, they put them up on these online uh, web sales uh, places for people who are looking for another set of seats for their, for their car. And some of these parts can be a lot of money. I mean, a set of power seats for something like uh, uh, like a high-end truck, can, you know, they can cost you $10,000 to buy them at market price. I mean, so there's lots of money in these parts. And people go online to look for them, buy them, and fix them up. So there, there's, wherever there's a buyer, there, there'll be a seller to meet that.
1: Uh, and and the, the parts are worth more than the actual vehicle and the hassle of trying to move that as opposed to the parts?
2: Yeah, a, a lot of times. I mean, uh, I, I can't remember the study. I remember there was a study done one time that said if you were to, to replace an entire new uh, GM car just right. from the cost of replacement parts, Instead of how you buy it whole, it would be something like 150000 bucks or something because that's, there's a lot of money in, in the reselling of parts for uh, auto makers. There's so, a lot of money in that. So,
1: does this make a dent at all, Ross? Is this just the tip of the iceberg? Uh, you know, there's, you know a whole pot, there's 75 more in another field somewhere else?
2: I I think it makes a dent. And, you know, one of the other things that's interesting about this, that they worked with the OPP to use their plane to fly over the Six Nations Reserves, take photographs, and they could see these vehicles scattered all over, all over Six Nations. That was part of the evidence they needed to go in to get them. But you know what? Guess what? The other thing that's coming to police arsenal these days are drones, You know, soon, Hamilton Mm. police, they're not going to need the OPP airplane. They'll just be able to put their own drone up, send it over some of these places. They'll be able to look for stolen vehicles. Uh, They'll be able to use that uh, to look for uh, cash crops, people growing pot illegally. They'll be able to use that to look at fields to see evidence of uh, recent burials in case they're looking for a body somewhere. So that's a new uh, new piece of the arsenal that's coming to police to help them uh, protect our communities
1: uh is there anything you can do to make sure that your vehicle doesn't get stolen i mean if they want it will they get it is it that old age, or are people just being stupid
2: well you have to look at number one if your vehicles on the list of the most easily stolen vehicles you look at that and you find out about it because there's certain vehicles that are easy to steal Many of the modern cars now, uh, any new car, they're, they're very sophisticated, the systems, So the only people who can steal them are people who are very sophisticated for, for taking that. You're going to be beat if they're looking at your car that way. Uh, but the main thing is keep your vehicle locked. Don't leave your keys at the front door of your house where we all toss our keys. We like to just put them there sort of thing. Bad guys know that. They'll go, and if you leave your door open, they'll go there, take the keys, steal your car. So there's some basic things you can do uh, to protect yourself.
1: Ross McLean is been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: All right. Everybody keep safe, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900-CHML.
1: Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. She is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today?
3: Oh, I am. Fine, Scott how are you Uh,
1: you know same old same old dog days of summer you know Trump what do you do right Um, so uh, lots of ways to approach this Uh, first of all um, I want to ask you over and above the Trump thing and whatever uh, when I saw this uh, and I'm a guy who's over 50 when I saw this uh, happening on the weekend my first thought was we're going backwards we are moving backwards instead of forward is that accurate, or are we always having these debates no matter what generation we are?
3: You know, it's really interesting you should say that. And to, you know, clarify, I am also a woman over 50. So. That's I why do, I love you, Alessa. There you go. I do know what you're talking about. And, you know, yes, we could say that we're going backwards, Scott, but we should also think that it never went away. And when I look at my own Facebook feed, which is a smattering of you know people from all over uh north america um, also in the united states you know black white hispanic you know everybody has the uh, you know the same reaction and it's one of disbelief So, you know, when I talk to my um, African-American and Canadian um, friends, you know, it's like, okay, well, this never went away. Racism never went away. Maybe it was hidden, or maybe it went underground is a better word to use when um, Barack Obama was was the president. But now we have another president who seems to tolerate this because it speaks to his base number 1 and number 2 he allegedly has is surrounding himself with the you know alt right uh advisors such as uh, Steve Bannon who basically was the publisher and editor of Breitbart News which supported alt right ideology so we're not going backwards we are this is an issue that is just rearing its ugly head because it's being given a uh, They feel that their platform is now legitimized by who is in power.
1: Right. So uh, let me ask you this. Is it good that Trump has brought this unpleasantness back to the forefront in some weird way? Is it positive that we're having that discussion, that it never went away as opposed to he's created it or brought it back?
3: I wouldn't say that it's positive. I would say that it is spurring the discussion, but unfortunately, Scott, the discussion is not good. The discussion has an even deeper divide, if that's possible, or it's it's just continuing to highlight the divide of how far apart we are in our ideology when it comes to racism. So, no, his his presence has highlighted all this and as I said, legitimized Skinheads, neo-Nazis, the alt-right, to say it's okay to parade now. It's okay for David Duke, uh, the head of the KKK, to walk around in a parade. You know, we're 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 now okay. People seem to be on our side, and we have a friend in the White House. So no, I mean this was never supposed to happen again. Neo-Nazism, really? You know, we know people are there are Nazis and don't like certain ethnic groups. But they've never been legitimized in saying, well, you know, we won now, so we're allowed to say what we want. No, but, you know, thank you for identifying yourself because there's more of us who don't want you around than do.
1: Uh, let's talk about President Trump, uh, Trump's reaction on Saturday. Uh, obviously, the public and everyone felt it was uh, not enough, uh, came out on Monday yesterday and pretty much did a 180 and and you know called it what it is, I guess. Um, what about he what about him missing the mark on Saturday and then coming back and, and saying it on Monday? Uh,
3: uh, can you recover from a flip-flop like that? He doesn't care about recovering. He's just answering what he thinks is is the right thing to do because there was so much screaming. I mean, honestly, he doesn't believe a word of it, in my opinion. And obviously, he has to do it because the President of the United States is being roundly criticized from, you know, leaders of the free world and his own constituency, that of America, for not saying anything. Nobody is fooled by this 48-hour delay of, oh gosh, maybe I'll say something now. Nobody. And the delay only serves to underscore where his true feelings and what he truly thinks is fine. And that initial statement, you know, you can't recover from that initial statement. Not that I think he cares about recovering, Scott. The initial statement was, well, there was a lot of violence on both sides. Yeah. Oh, okay, so there was violence against neo-Nazis, and you're also blaming the people who protested their presence. Mm. Really? Like, first of all, I don't even think Trump understands the gravity of this. I, I have that's to That's the
1: part, that's the point that I'm, I'm moving towards, Alyssa, because, you know, a lot of people are asking, why would he have said what he said on Saturday and then completely do a 180 on Monday. Well, obviously, the White House got a hold of him and said, here, read this. Why did that that not happen on Saturday? And and is it because of his attitude, uh, because of his ignorance, or he's just flying by the seat of his pants half the time?
3: Well, I don't think he's flying by the seat of his pants because I think he's being fed everything he should do and say.
1: So do you think he was fed on Saturday?
3: 100%. I think Steve Bannon see, I'm, I'm sitting more there inclined. writing the notes and say say this, and Trump implicitly um, you know trusts Steve Bannon yeah. and um, and the advisors of that ilk, and they say, look, listen, just do this. We don't want to you know disrupt the people who really like you, Donald. You know there are so many of these guys who voted for you. You don't want to make them mad. And, you know, Trump has this insatiable desire to be liked.
1: But he tweets so so much stuff off the cuff that he doesn't think about. What makes you think that's not the case this time?
3: Well, I think they took away his phone because, honestly, he probably said, well, what should I tweet about? And they said, you know what, nothing in this case. Just hold tight. And he went, oh, okay. well, let's go back to golf. Can I do that now? So, you know, this is I think that every one of his actions is 100 percent orchestrated and controlled.
1: Uh, Let me ask you this. Uh, We remember when there was the horrific uh, gassing in in Syria and there was the horrific images of children that had suffered a gas attack and such. And then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, uh, the the administration launches an attack on Syria. um, And for that brief moment, he almost seemed sort of presidential and was actually praised for doing what he did and said that, you know, it, it was him watching and seeing those poor kids on television that made him react. Do you think in this sort of scenario, I mean, this is a man that manages through confusion. he He'll bring in two top executives who have, who are polar opposite just to watch them basically cockfight in front of everybody. Right. Um, and and that's and that's what he finds fascinating about business. He's tried to take that, that, uh, that, that way of doing business and applying it to government and clearly it doesn't work because people react. Do you think that he didn't realize what sort of reaction would come out of Charlotte's, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia and, and, and that he just didn't have any sort of wherewithal of how serious this was?
3: Oh, I'm sure he, he, he knew that. I mean, I hope hoping knew he has some semblance of morality, but again, I mean, he's more concerned about what people think about him than any action. So when you say, you know, you launched a strike against Syria after he saw that gassing, well, you know, there's nothing like some positive um, outcome of uh, an attack to bring a country together. So, which is why everybody is so freaked out about how he's talking to North Korea mm. and uh, their alleged, you know, their possible bombing of Guam. And there'd be nothing better to get people on his side than, and in, 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 I think, in their ideology, than to engage in some sort of uh, mini war. Right. You right. know, war brings people together. Mm. So they're probably thinking, well, you know, how much war do we really need? And I know it sounds ridiculous, but there's nothing that's sane here. And things that we thought had gone long ago, you and I both sat in basically the same, you know, history classes mm-hmm. and we learned about the atrocities that have been going on for the past, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. And yet here they are in full bloom again. And why is that? I mean, it's all based on, you know, four more years, to be quite honest. And it's all based on a couple guys who would like to see the dismantling of the, you know, the democratic institution as we know it.
1: Um, the reaction, how do you think people are taking his, uh, his statements on Monday uh, after what had happened on Saturday uh, and in his comments? How do you think people, Americans specifically reacted to what he said on Monday?
3: Um, you know, I think that his base thought, well, that's fine. He said what he thought was right. Okay, that's fine. I mean, you know, the, everybody was fighting. So so there's that. There's the supporter side. And then there's the side of everybody else who's basically uh, incredulous that it took him, you know, that he was, you know, so neutral on Monday. And then 48 hours later, he actually called out the groups by name. So, uh, you know, nobody believes the sincerity of this. They honestly don't believe that he uh, is against neo-Nazis and the alt-right. I think he sees them as a base. And as long as he treads carefully by giving them some sort of leeway, you know, for example, 48 hours before he goes ahead and, and shames them, that, you know, he'll still be okay.
1: Uh, twice in the statement on Monday, and, and I, don't, I, I don't have it written down in front of me, but twice he made reference to, like I said on the weekend, like I said on Saturday, uh, meaning that he had alluded to everything he was saying on Monday, on Saturday. Did you catch that? Does that do people buy that?
3: No, nobody buys it. I mean, like, again, I think that, you know, what you think about Trump is, for example, you know, when he's made faux pas before, you look to his base, and what do they say? Well, they, everybody's picking on him. He can't do his job. Everybody's picking on him. So there's that. And then there's the, is this really happening? But the, but the thing that worries me, Scott, really, is, the, you, know, you know, the Democrats are coming out, um, you know, and, and slamming this, and, and Republicans alike, you know, the the old party faithful Republicans that are not necessarily for Trump are coming out against him. Um, but it doesn't seem to be enough to, to turn the tide of sentiment. So, you know, do I think that the Democrats really need to rally around a spokesperson and come out with uh, cohesive messaging based um, on one person, or based, actually it should, just be, it should be based on one person? Yes, I think they do. I think that their response and their resistance at this point is somewhat fractured. So we're not really seeing, I mean, we're we're all in shock and, and horror uh, about these statements and about what is actually happening in the U.S., but what we're not seeing is sort of a very unified um, uh, response against this that actually galvanizes people to action.
1: Uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, late show last night, uh, had uh, Anthony Scaramucci on, former communications director for uh uh of course donald trump and the uh, u.s presidency here's what happened on that show right who's leaking now is it steve bannon well i've said that
0: i mean i'm, I'm just saying say say to these listen people, i've been pretty it? open about that let me, <laughs> let me, steve bannon let me explain okay but i said he was and i obviously got caught on tape saying he was so i have no problem saying that okay but is he but, gonna be gone in a week that's up to the president but what, do, me, you what do you think what do you think what does the mooch think?
1: well if it was it was up to me, he would be gone, okay, but it's- <laughs> wow, uh, I watched this last night, and um uh uh of course, it was always it's always great television, but I thought that that Colbert was too much on the attack. your thoughts of of what happened last night
3: you know it's in no other words, if you give them, if, it's if, very if, funny, it, and I think that you know maybe Scaramucci's gonna have his own talk show soon, yeah. <laughs> so- You know, late night with the mooch, so who knows? He was quite entertaining. And, uh, you know, the one thing about him is that, yes, he was couching some of his responses, but he was pretty shoot from the hip. He was pretty, he answered him in in pretty much a way that we expected him to answer. I don't think he was being that cagey at all. And as for Colbert, I think that, you know, when you got a guy like that in your hot seat, people say, well, he attacked him too much. Well, what were you going to talk to? him about?
1: No, again, what, what I thought was he just, you know, like Mooch is the kind of guy, if you give him enough rope, he'll hang himself. And I just thought he kept interrupting him. And I thought if you just let him go, He's going to say what what you want him to say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he just he was you can tell that Colbert is so angry with what Trump is doing that he's just he's going at him like a Gatlin gun almost.
3: Well, you know, that's true. But, you know, l- listen, the show has his name on it, right? Yeah,
1: oh, absolutely. So,
3: <laughs> just like it's the Scott Thompson show. So, you basically, it's, it's your POV that people are tuning in for. And I think that those who tune in, you know, night after night to Colbert thought that, you know, what he did was a great job. I mean, yeah. I certainly didn't mind it. I found it very entertaining. I mean, let's face it, it's clickbait. It's a ratings boost. He also knew what he was doing. Um, you know, and Scaramucci delivered. He delivered as a guest. I thought he gave some, you know, some thoughtful responses. He didn't really run from questions. I mean, he may have tried to answer carefully. But at the end of the day, uh, it was entertaining. And I don't think anybody left feeling as if Colbert left any stone unturned. Uh,
1: No one that I'm aware of is asking Sean Spicer to come on their show.
3: Uh, why not? You know, here's the thing. I mean, Spicer at this point, you know, he's almost like jumped the shark. You know, he's not as interesting as, you know, he's not the man of the moment anymore. You know, six months ago, if he had come on, I mean, everybody would have tuned in and they know that. So at this point... No, I mean, like, the other thing that was interesting, you know, after he left the White House, one of the things that he said was, I mean, everybody's, A, waiting for a book deal, and who knows what NDA he signed, a non-disclosure agreement. But the other thing he said was, I really want to be on Saturday Night Live. So, you know, that says (laughs) to me that, wow, how funny would that be if I was side-by-side with um, Melissa McCarthy the same way that Sarah Palin was side-by-side with Tina Fey. Yeah, yeah, good point. So there's that. And um, however, you know, I don't know. I mean, unless Sean Spicer is going to come out and really say something blockbuster, people sort of know what he's going to say. So, you know, uh, and maybe he also hasn't put himself out to want to come out on a talk show yet. So he's not certainly not going to be able to supersede you know Scaramucci in this in at this point because he's more recent and he's more the flavor of the day, but maybe down the line we will see Sean Spicer on the Colbert show
1: but you know even uh, you know uh, the mooch said himself that he you know a, a carton of milk lasted longer than what he did. How long can this 15 minutes of fame for him last? Considering you know we're talking about it now longer than he actually served in the job.
3: Well, this is the thing. So you know it it works with athletes. It works with people who achieve sudden notoriety. Either you strike while the iron's hot or forget it. So if you want to wait and think about it, sort of like you know in the way that Sean Spicer, but Sean Spicer couldn't do it, and he was in a government job representing the White House. But You know, it's almost like if he really wanted to strike while the iron's hot, he should have, like, been on the talk show circuit ASAP that day that he left the next day, which is kind of what Scaramucci's doing. And, you know, you don't know how this happened behind the scenes. Did they reach out to Scaramucci, Colbert? Maybe. Did did Scaramucci's people reach out to Colbert? Might have been. So, you know, there's one thing that Scaramucci knows is is that he knows who he is, he knows how he talks, he knows he has a personality that people are interested in hearing what he has to say, and he is, you know, you know basking in that limelight while he can.
1: Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays
1: from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It was August 16th, 1977, uh, at age 42, uh, Elvis Presley passed away uh, in Graceland, uh, which of course is his home in uh, in uh, Tennessee. Uh, Graceland, of course, now uh, open to the public, has been for a, a long period of time. Uh, I'm just, it was just on the website, and, and now they have a new uh, hotel guest house as well, so you can actually go and, and stay at Graceland. And of course, uh, there's also chatter of uh, Elvis on tour, which is an ex- uh, an exhibit, an exhibition, uh, which will be in London uh, later on this year as well. Is it or is he still as significant as listeners and fans of Elvis slowly move through the demographic and uh, off onto other worlds, per se? Uh, are people still interested? in the life and times of Elvis Presley and everything that he stood for uh, way back in uh, the mid-1950s. To talk more about all of this, Eric Elper is with us, music publicist, and on the line with us now. Hello, Eric. How are you today?
0: Um, uh, you know, I, I just have to clarify something. About this Elvis on tour, like, that's that's really him, right? Because I could have sworn I just saw him at the Petrocan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> does,
0: does he still have the big pork chop sideburns? You know what? He didn't, but after I gave him a dollar tip, he said thank you. Thank you very much. Thank so you very obviously much. it's him.
1: Have you seen any shots of Priscilla recently? She's like 70. Um and still looks unbelievable.
0: She um well, you know uh, which parts are 70. Well,
1: <laughs> I don't I don't think there's a lot of original equipment there.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know what? It how t- whenever you think from now on that you've had a bad day, um, imagine what it's like being Priscilla all the time. Like, just for the rest of your life, you are going to be defined by that one man and the time that you have spent with that person.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing when you think about it, uh, the legacy that he had and the legacy that he has after his death. Can you keep this alive 40 years later? I remember hearing some... Uh, reading some articles not that long ago, within the last year, that said that attendance at Graceland was kind of waning.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There um, There is a number of websites that are out there that mildly can predict what a dead artist is worth in the world. And Michael Jackson has topped that list. Um, garnering anywhere between $300 million and $500 million worth of revenue. Um, and that's based on merchandise, book sales, um, and obviously record sales and music streaming services. Elvis had that list and that number one position to himself for a number of years until around the early 1990s when Kurt Cobain passed away and then Michael Jackson passed away. But um, his influence... And his significance and his net worth, although it's still pretty high, absolutely has been waning, especially in the last five or six years. And it's really due to the way that people are consuming music more than anything else. If you look on those really popular music streaming services like Spotify or Pandora in the U.S. or even iTunes, whenever there is a new album, in fact, this week, Elvis is in battle right now with Ed Sheeran for the number one position on the album charts but it'll it, it they don't have staying power for his releases and in fact his streaming songs aren't really generating a lot of revenue. they're not generating a lot of a lot of um, a lot of spins and partly because, the older generation who grew up with Elvis and remembering Elvis, and even in the last 10 years after he passed away, aren't on music streaming services. They're still buying CDs. Some of them are still even buying vinyl and cassettes. Um, It's that younger generation that you always have to look to when you're a record label or the music industry to keep those back catalogs alive. Led Zeppelin is doing well. The Stones are doing well. The Who are doing well. Elvis just seems to be... Um, more significant in terms of what he meant and stood for, um, both good and bad, rather than his music. So uh, so
1: will we see a resurgence in Elvis product, music, uh, on these services as a new generation discovers them? Or is he just not being marketed in this way? Because, you know, from what I thought of Graceland, it was a marketing machine.
0: Yeah, you know, there, there was a, a, a number of years ago, I'm going to say about 20 years ago, there was a DJ named Junkie XL, and he was one of the most popular uh, electronic DJs out there. And he worked with Nike to produce this amazing World Cup soccer Nike commercial, and they were using Elvis's song, A Little Less Conversation. And it was amazing. Uh, since then... It's kind of winged mm-hmm. off a little bit. And, and, and I don't think it's, um, it's a repackaging of ideas. I don't think it's putting, you know, like they've done recently, putting Elvis songs with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, for instance. I don't think it's a matter of using these really cool, hip DJs to remix his stuff. I think when you're just talking about life in general, you're talking about somebody whose best years were 50 to 60 years ago and that's like that's when i was 15 years old that's like saying that count basie was suddenly going to become popular um that's as far you know that's pre-world war ii information um so i don't think that the kids the kids today while i stand here shaking my small fist at the clouds i don't Hmm. think that the kids today are really truly interested in what happened before 1965, to be honest with you. And that includes the greats, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, the Everly Brothers. Fine music, but I don't think that unless you're a musician, you're really tuning back on that stuff.
1: So is it a matter of time before the same thing happens to the Rolling Stones? or Led Zeppelin, uh, oh, as yeah. as, the, as their segment of the population passes through uh, into senior citizenship. Are we going to see the same thing 10 years from now? The, yeah, yeah, because, you, you know, basically those artists were 10 years after Elvis.
0: I love posing that idea when I'm on Twitter. Sometimes every once in a while I'll ask when question is the same one. Which artists from today are going to be recognized and still viable 50 years from now? And people will still say the same old question. Elias Morissette, uh, Radiohead, Ed Sheeran. But the fact of the matter is though, in a hundred years from now, there might just be two. It might be Chuck Berry and the Beatles. Um, Elvis was certainly going to be up there. I think Frank will always be Frank Sinatra will always yeah. be remembered. But I, I I think it's just going to be one of those as we keep moving forward into the future we start to leave a lot of this music behind because unfortunately once the generation moved, that helped create this absolute pandemonium that we have still yet to see, I don't care what anybody says about even at the peak of Michael Jackson's thriller, this was nothing compared to what I could only a smidgen imagine what it was like in 1956 when all this mm. came around. It, it, you, you'll never, you know, there's a really great line that, that somebody once told me, it was like, we will never agree as much as we did about how much we loved Elvis.
3: Hmm. And, and, and I
0: think that's really, really key for that because I think you either loved him or you hated him, but you had an opinion about him. And in today's fractured world, I think it's really, really tough for somebody to make that impact again.
1: Also, you know, it's kind of it's kind of contradictory in the sense that young people now have more of a base of knowledge of music than, than kids 30, 40 years ago, or say we did growing up. Um, you know now we've have generations that have grown up with rock and roll over and over and over again as mm-hmm. opposed to the 50s when Elvis started, uh, there was very much a changing of the guard. It was the old standard type of you know Frank Sinatra tune and it then the all
0: invention of the teenager
1: yeah and then all... exactly then all of a sudden in the mid50s it's the invention of the teenager amplified music and screaming and yelling and, and moving all around in ways that were ungodly. Um, uh, uh, which, you know, uh, when you think of it now, there was very much a generation or then there was a generation gap. Now, I mean, my kids will listen to stuff that was old when I was young. They will listen to stuff from 60s and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. you know, and I've heard lots of people say, you know, kids have such a huge knowledge of music now compared to yeah. what, you know other older generations had so at what point does it go from that huge saturation where we're playing everybody to you know what i'm not listening to elvis anymore i mean yeah. again is that just a demographic
0: yeah i i think so and that's also a matter of choice too because you know when 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 you and i we were buying records or when we wanted to actually consume music we actually had to buy it we had to Take the bus, go down to the local yep. record store, spend our hard-earned money that we spend all this time on, open it up, play it, and then go—literally go either pick up the phone and call somebody, or go walk over and tell somebody about it. Now I can do that with a tweet and reach over a million people. The—the um, the idea that when Elvis first started completely, um, completely changed the course of, of pop music forever. I mean, it, 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 with with all of his sexuality and sensuality and, and, bridging, and, and bridging teenagers together to help separate that generation gap completely, fully, forevermore. Since then, I, I don't even think the word generation gap even existed before somebody like Elvis. Um, so what you have now is, is, is a number of teenagers and, and all these cool kids from high school or even like the music geeks or like all these people having access to as much music as they possibly want, just like how you and I were so enthralled with the iPod, where I could have the Bee Gees and Elvis and Pink Floyd and Guar, and nobody will yeah. ever mention how obscure or how weird mm. those tastes are. If kids want to be shocked today, uh, they can just go on Instagram. Mm. You know, If they want to feel sexy, if they want to feel like, Sexual liberation, like Elvis did for so many people, they could just go on YouTube and make their own videos, or go watch porn, which is only like one click away.
1: It's not so, coming from their pop stars.
0: It, it's not coming from their pop stars anymore. And, you know, to be dangerous right now, it's oh, to be. Da- <laughs> yeah. Don't get don't get me on the right. To be brave and dangerous right now is to do an Instagram photo without makeup. Yeah. Yeah. That's the level of, of controversy that we are dealing with in the clickbait media, something that you can't even fathom. What an absolute change. When Elvis appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, what an, literally three minutes in the world would change.
1: Uh, do you think because he, you know he was more uh, a pop culture icon, movie star, rock star, rock and roll star, whatever you want to call it, rather than a true artist in the sense that he would sit down and write and produce his own songs? Do you think uh, that after the initial um, wave of Elvis fans are out of it that he will not get perhaps the the credibility that he should, like a Chuck Berry or a Beatles because of, his lack of musical ability?
0: Yeah, you know what? That's a really interesting question because sometimes people will, will, will say that to me in an argument that people like Elvis or um, well, how they'll start it is that there was, there was a, a, a point that came out last week that I, that I posted about. Um, in, the, in the 1960s, there were um, 1.6 writers of a song on average in the Billboard Hot 100 charts for the decade of 1960s. Now it's 6.8. So now you've got six writers almost to a tee of every single song that is heard on pop radio or that is becoming popular. Hmm. So the argument goes that while well, these people aren't real artists, Ed Sheeran isn't a real artist, even though that he may... He might have a songwriting credit. There's seven other people that are involved with the writing of the song and the creation of the song. It wasn't four guys from Liverpool all sitting in a room, but we really knew that it was just John and Paul. Um, you know, does 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 Taylor Swift get a little bit less credibility as an artist because she happens to have songwriters? I, I think that the way that that radio is going, I don't really see a whole lot of changes because it's actually a rare case when somebody like, um, like Ed Sheeran decides that he is going to write his own song without any songwriters. In fact, I think Bruno Mars last year was the first artist in, in something like five or six years to have a number one song that was solely written by the artist that was actually performing it. And so radio can dictate a lot. To how the music is being consumed um so i don't think it's a matter now of the argument of well these people aren't true artists because they never wrote the song because if anybody ever tells me that frank sinatra wasn't a true artist that's where the argument starts hmm.
1: yeah good point <laughs> very good point uh what about things what about graceland and the, and all the merchandising aspect of this um is there still the desire for people to go and see graceland
0: yeah, there, there's still well over a million people a year that attend Graceland, and especially when there's an anniversary like the 40th or the 35th, um, that happened five years ago. Um, it's still a very big tourist attraction, um, not just for Americans, but for music fans around the world. It is still one of those places where you may not own a single Elvis song or an Elvis album or even were around when Elvis was still alive. But if you go to Memphis, Tennessee, you're going to Graceland. Just to see Man. the absolute gaudiness of what the, the furniture was looking like and how the curtains are still up there. Like There are still rooms that are, are, have been completely untouched um, in there. And I think that something like the fact that a Graceland even exists Um, I'll tell you what, I mean, Michael Jackson's Neverland was solely based on having his own Graceland. Um, and whenever somebody decides to call, you know, their palace, um, or their home, something like a museum, Graceland is still the one to beat. So why with Elvis? Have you ever been, by the way? No,
1: I've never been.
0: I'm, Would you go? Yes, you were, ab- you absolutely.
1: Yes, Nashville's on my bucket list. Memphis is on my bucket list. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Yeah,
0: and it's funny because like, there's like a 15-foot white sofa and a 10-foot coffee table that is photographed whenever you know, you know people decide to go do a Google search for it. And it's it's nothing special. It looks like a 1972 sofa, but it's Elvis's sofa. Yeah, yeah, you, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's really funny how you'll just... But, but we do that in society. They're like, oh, you can't tear down Ringo Starr's home that he lived in when he was three to five years old. It's a historical document as much as an essay or, or a book is to some people.
1: There's a new Graceland Hotel there. Oh, is it really? Yeah, there's I a know. new hotel that's opened up. So that's I mean, it, yeah, it's the Graceland Guest House. There you go. The only,
0: the only thing on the menu is uh, fried bananas <laughs> and peanut
1: butter sandwiches. So will we see, and you know, 40th anniversary of the death tomorrow? Uh, you know, other than you know what we're seeing in 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 media outlets and such, is there much of a of, of a commotion for this? How come we're not seeing another box set? How come we're not seeing more merchandise? Will he get back up on? on top of those lists of, you know, legacy entertainers.
0: Yeah, I I think he's going to stay in the top 10 for a very, very long time, at least for the next 10 or 15, 20 years, at least. But um, in today's world where... Everybody kind of gathers around the Internet or their newspapers or radio or TV around anniversaries. Um, I saw it with Nirvana's 25th anniversary of Nevermind. And whenever somebody passes away, it's, it's a big commotion for 24 hours. And then the next day, everybody goes back to the next shiny new toy.
1: So uh, do young people still recognize the significance of a Elvis or do they put him in the same category now as a Frank Sinatra?
0: You know what? I don't even think that they do that. I I think I think oh, you know, and it pains for me to say this, but I, I I'm going to say it anyway. I I think that they look at him as a little bit like a clown, like a like somebody that used to exist, hmm. but got re- but you know they they don't remember him from the early years. They remember him from his pat from his fat druggy period yeah. with those giant white you know yeah. suits. Because whenever people see Elvis impersonators or Elvis festivals around the world. Very few people are dressed like the 1956 Elvis with that red
1: jacket. Why is that? Why aren't they picking the cool Elvis?
0: Because I think that the people that are that age don't have the body structure anymore like a 1956 (laughs) Elvis. So it's very easy to say, you know, this punch, I can get away with Elvis 1973. And so that's the Elvis that they choose to do. You you know, because there's just something about the, you know, if you... There's a great book called Dead Elvis by Griel Marcus, and it's not a historical book that reveals his day-to-day life um, like, most auto- like most biographies do. He actually decided to trace the bloating of America with the bloating of Elvis, and I'm not just talking about the physical state, but just like the more drugs, the bigger house. The the 19 Cadillacs that he only drove one of them, the team that he had around him, everything was just bigger and bigger. And it's a really interesting book because when Elvis first came out, America was lean. It was mean. It was just getting off of the wars. It was trying to figure something. You know, stuff out. Teenagers were trying to figure out who they were as a collective group, and it kind of moves forward onto these lost periods of like nineteen sixty nine to seventy three when nobody knew what was going on during Watergate, and nobody knew what was, hmm. you know, politics. And then you know, with the whole big, um, you know, Uncle Sam and the the bicentennial, where everything just got bigger and bigger and rah 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 with the oil crisis and politics. That's when Elvis passed away, and, and the book kind of makes a really interesting case that the, the birth of America as we knew it in the last hundred years can really be justified by taking a look at what the life of Elvis was all about.
1: Tomorrow will mark the 40 years, 40th anniversary since the passing of Elvis Presley. Eric Elper has been with his music publicist. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.